0: We did. Uh, I do hope to get through 1 Peter chapter 4 today. Thank you for reading that whole chapter this morning. I would like to uh, look at something that we, we didn't actually address last week. Um, and in order to do that, I'd actually like to go forward a bit in Peter's writings to uh, his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 3. I would draw your attention to verse 15 of 2 Peter Chapter 3. I'm going to ask you to turn there, if you would. We're going to take a moment here and perhaps slightly snicker at the Apostle Peter as we look at... uh, Second Peter, chapter 3, Peter says, "...and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters," that is, the Apostle Paul's, "...when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do in other scriptures." Speaking of hard-to-understand things, uh, the Apostle Peter uh, joins the Apostle Paul in writing hard-to-understand things, and one of those things comes up in in 1 Peter chapter 3. And so, one of the things that we didn't get to last week in 1 Peter chapter 3 uh, is right here, beginning in verse 18. So I draw your attention to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, the Bible says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. No question there. This is a very straightforward passage of Scripture. Uh, verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. This is the place that isn't exactly straightforward. Uh, and in verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah... While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, I'm persuaded, most Bible students are, that that last section that I read regarding Noah, his connection to baptism, is also a straightforward passage. And the point there is that our spiritual baptism uh, is also, really could be the same as... Uh, our regeneration, when God gives us life, right? So we're a people who, unlike uh, the Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church, we're a people that that do not believe that baptism saves us. We believe that the Lord Jesus saves us, right? And we believe that if we're if our salvation is uh, is is going to be compared to baptism, it's going to have to be compared to the biblical phrase spiritual. Baptism. This idea that isn't seen by the eye, but nonetheless, it is a reflection of the new life. It is, in fact, that that moment when we're given new life—baptism by the Spirit. So this is uh, an important idea. But I want to draw your attention to the verse, "The spirits in prison," here because uh, it is hard to understand, um, and I want to really draw your attention to this verse. Not primarily so that we can understand the verse, to be honest with you, but so that we can appreciate our confession, frankly, and so that we can also appreciate the rest of Scripture. Uh, Because what we have uh, in this passage of Scripture, for instance, Calvin's editors are persuaded that it refers to the time of Noah that Christ, by his Spirit, employed Noah as a preacher of righteousness, though without success. Simon Kistemacher uh, in the New testament commentary wrote he 's persuaded that these these spirits were supernatural beings, not the souls of men that seemed to control the human race in the days of Noah. Uh, if you've got a reformed study Bible, you notice that Reformed study Bible actually proposes five different options for the description of that verse and so um, i 'm not trying to to dazzle you with confusion um, I 'm persuaded that uh, we should view this as uh, a, a reflection of the way the Lord Jesus did uh, in the spirit you know preach to those through through Noah, as uh, calvin's editors had as Kistemacher perhaps is associated with this this idea now but at issue is is really something that uh, often people use this passage of scripture to um, they connect it to a number of things. One of the things they connect it to is the Apostles' Creed phrase, He descended into hell. Now, so again in this verse, uh, this verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So, uh, some would take the phrase from the Apostles' Creed, He descended into hell, and they would, they would link it with this passage in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19. I have mentioned this before, but I would, in this case, draw your attention to the Heidelberg Catechism, number 44, uh, which says this. Why is there added, he descended into hell? That's the question. The answer, that in my greatest temptations I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this. That my Lord Jesus Christ, by His inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies, in which He was plunged during all His sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. Now again, so what we're zeroing in on here isn't actually what the passage means. There's some uncertainty. But my point in bringing up the confession, which I want to draw your attention to, as well as other passages of Scripture, is that while we may be uncertain about what the passage teaches... We, we can be certain about what it doesn't teach. And this is an important idea, okay? So in other words, again, we may be uncertain about what the passage teaches. I think there's, uh, there's enough consensus that we can at least get close to an idea of what Peter's talking about here. But Bavink brings up a number of things that I think are particularly important here. Bavink says this. He says, Some hold that this passage refers to gospel preaching in the intermediate state. Yet there's no scriptural support for this idea, and this passage does not support it either, since it's referring to those during Noah's day who did hear the gospel preached. Consider also in verse 4-6, we have a similar idea that we'll touch on today, that is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead. So we will if uh, given the opportunity look at that again but then he, he he says further the theory of a kind of gospel preaching in Hades is based on a number of incorrect assumptions now, again i don't want, i know this is a little bit confusing but one of the one of the reasons that people latch on to 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 19 is because they're also persuaded of a number of other assumptions that they bring to the scriptures okay And here are some of these assumptions that Herman Babink brings up. Number one, that God is intent to save all humans. God is expressly revealed in his scriptures that everyone is not going to be saved. Now, I don't don't take joy in the death of the wicked, but the reality is, is that the scriptures reveal that God is not a universalist in the sense that everyone will end up in heaven. It's just not going to happen. That's not what God has purposed to do. He has determined that he is most glorified in the salvation of the elect and that the others will perish in hell. Secondly, another wrong assumption is that the preaching of the gospel has to be absolutely universal. Now, it's, uh, it's appropriate that we feel a tremendous urgency to proclaim the gospel, but the reality is, and this should add incredible urgency to our own proclamation of the gospel, the reality is, is that there are literally millions of people that will never hear the gospel. They will never hear the gospel. And in this simple fact, we should, we should be encouraged at, at, at the sheer goodness of God to us. We are, we are, of all people, most privileged. Not because we were born in America... Not because we live here right now, but because we have heard the gospel and been called out such that we might believe savingly. The third third idea that Bavink brings up is that all humans must be personally and individually confronted by the choice for or against the gospel. Again, there are some that bring this assumption to the Scriptures, this idea that God has intended and will, therefore, proclaim to every single individual on the earth the gospel. To follow along with that, a fourth assumption, that in making that choice, the decision lies... Uh, within human power. Again, this idea that all humans must be personally and individually confronted by the choice for or against the gospel. Fourthly, that in making that choice, the decision lies within human power. Fifthly, that original and actual sins are insufficient to condemn anyone. What do we mean by that? Well, the idea simply is this. At birth, the Bible reveals that we have we, we have uh, taken to ourselves under the covenant of Adam the sins of Adam, right? And that at birth, we are, we are headed not for heaven, but for hell, right? Heaven, heaven isn't ours to lose. Heaven is ours to gain through saving faith, through being made alive in Christ, right? Sixthly, this idea that only deliberate unbelief toward the gospel makes a person worthy of eternal ruin, Again, this idea, the reality is is that we are bound for hell unless God stays his hand and saves us. Our automatic place that we are going is for hell, children. An eternal sensory death. It's a horrifying thing and it should be thought of as that which would give us great urgency not only to get ourselves in a right position with God through faith in Lord Jesus Christ but also have this urgency for others. Now, where does the confession come in? Well, our confession is unashamedly monergistic about salvation, about justification, I should say and also this idea that it is, it is also unashamedly uh, embracing this idea that God is sovereign. Now, what does it mean for God to be sovereign? Well, we're persuaded that that simply is, in a sense, uh, saying the same thing. It's a redundancy. God is sovereign. The reality is, is that to be God means that you must be sovereign. <laughs> right? This idea that He is, in fact, in control of every molecule, Okay. Now, let's, let's consider our confession here. Our confession in chapter 9 of free will. Paragraph 3. Humanity, by falling into a state of sin, has completely lost all ability to choose any spiritual good that accompanies salvation. Well, what does that mean? Well... What that means is a number of things, and we can see um, a number of the points of the Reformation coming together here. First of all, it's it's, um, this declaration of the total depravity of man. Now, what does that mean? What does the total depravity of man mean? Well, the total depravity of man doesn't mean that man is incapable of doing a kind act for his neighbor. It doesn't mean that. But what it does mean, ultimately, uh, is that that every aspect of him is so negatively impacted by original sin that he cannot savingly reach out to God. He cannot savingly reach out to God. That's what the Bible reveals. Now, we could wish that it were different. But God has revealed that. Dead in sins and trespasses, in fact, means dead in sins and trespasses. Dead men cannot choose life. And that's the idea that justification, justification which is not the sum total of salvation, nor is it the beginning of salvation... It's the beginning of salvation for us, right? But it is certainly not the beginning of salvation for God, who from the very beginning, before the creation of the earth, chose for himself a people that he would redeem. Right? That, you want to talk about the beginning of salvation? That's the beginning. Right? Justification is monergistic. What the Bible reveals in that and what our confession confirms is that God is the one that gives us life. Right? He's the one that gives us life. And so, I want to draw your attention to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, because yes, there are a swirl of ideas that would surround that, and some of those are associated with, with these poor, unbiblical assumptions that somehow God, has, God is, is liable that every individual on earth will hear and have a possibility to intentionally reject the gospel. And that only an intentional and deliberate rejection of the gospel would send a person to hell. This idea that, that those folks that never hear the gospel are therefore not liable to the condemnation that their sin brings. The scriptures do not say that. The scriptures reveal that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That we are headed for an eternal sensory hell, an eternal death with out Christ acting on our behalf to give us life. Now what's the result of that? Well Paul says rejoice. I say again rejoice. We've been counted as those who will live in Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ meant what he said. When he said come to me all who are weary and heavy laden I will give you rest this is this is this idea that Spurgeon uh, said notably this idea that the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God are not in they're, they're not in competition with one another why try to reconcile friends that's what Spurgeon said about this idea is it hard to understand yes is it true yes god calls us to repent and believe and that's our responsibility but we understand that the scriptures reveal that he gives to us this saving faith and this ability to repent so as we look at first peter chapter 3 verse 19 again it's important and this is a great opportunity for us as we look at the scriptures to recognize they all work together right first peter chapter 3 verse 19 is not an exhaustive exposition of how the gospel is preached it's a confusing passage. But we have all the rest of Scripture, right, to help us to understand, okay, well, what, what can it mean and what cannot it mean, right? And so this is, this is a place where we can go and look at that, okay? Now, you may have other questions, and I'd be happy uh, to discuss those and search the Scriptures further with you regarding the end of chapter 3. Now, let's look at, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4. Beginning here in verse 1, I draw your attention to this phrase, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, this phrase, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, some of you that have studied ancient Greece, uh, you might recall that around 700 or 600 years before the Lord Jesus Christ was really the beginning... Of a republican form of government, a democracy, of self-rule. It also is the beginning, if you will, of the concept of citizenship. Uh, And this word that is used here uh, for arm yourself is the word also that we get the word hoplite from. Now you may say, well, what is hoplite? Well, the soldiers in Greece were called hoplite soldiers. Now... One of the fascinating things that is very timely for our day, you might ask, well, why was Greece so successful as a nation-state? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because because historians are persuaded that it was the concept of a citizen-soldier that saved the day. This idea that we're not sending slaves to fight for us, nor are we sending mercenaries that these are people who are, in fact, citizens, voting citizens, land-owning citizens, small farmers that are defending their land. Nobody fights like those guys fight. And so, Peter is drawing our attention and using this example, arm yourselves with this kind of thinking. Now again, what, what do we arm ourselves for? Well, think, if you want to think about the hoplite soldier children, the hoplite soldier... He was an interesting guy, okay? Now, he was he was noted. You'd be able to point one of these guys out. If you see a hoplite soldier in your neighborhood, you'll notice that he has a shield. That he has a shield, and he likely has a spear. And the term phalanx is also associated with hoplite soldiers, this idea that they were very powerful and that they stood together often and that their shields, of course, were a very important aspect of their defense. Uh, but they were... They were uh, Fierce warriors. And they were defending their homeland. And so, the Apostle Peter is drawing our attention to this idea of this the importance, the urgency. And we see this idea of urgency built a number of times in this passage of Scripture. For instance, in verse 2 so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This idea of urgency is brought up here. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. This idea of urgency. Verse 17, for it is the time for judgment to begin at the household of God. This idea of urgency is brought up here. And so Peter Peter. It's saying, since Christ suffered in the flesh, He is our example. He was armed Himself with. His way of thinking was such. What was His way of thinking? That we should expect to suffer for our faith. The Apostle Peter uses surprise two times in this passage. The first time that he uses it is right here in verse 3, excuse me, verse 4. With respect to this, that is, those who are turned away from God, when they look at your righteous behavior, with respect to this, they are surprised. And then we also see in verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised. So I would draw your attention to this idea that Peter is saying that the redeemed shouldn't be surprised, right? Right? They shouldn't be surprised. The unredeemed, those who turn away from God, they're surprised. What are they surprised about? Well, they're shocked at the righteous behavior of those who are redeemed in Christ. The idea is that they, they, uh, they used to enjoy your company when they involved themselves in the frolic and debauchery of the sinfulness of their day. And they're shocked because they're so drawn to that. That's such a part of their life. And, and you're no longer a part of that. But also... This idea about the fiery trials that we see in verse 12. Do not be surprised. Why? Well, over and over again, Peter has reminded us that the context of our redemption on earth is hostility. The context is suffering. The context is difficulty. But it's not purposeless. Again, we have a sovereign God, right? Right? God you know some people are comfortable with the sovereign God is he's sovereign in his ability to rescue but not in his ability or in his actions that actually cause the difficulty we're okay that God can help rescue me from a hurricane but we're very uncomfortable with the idea that God causes hurricanes friends hurricanes are caused by God now if you want to describe it using weather and barometric pressure that's okay God can use those if he wants. But God is the master of the universe. He controls all things. The Bible reveals that to be true. And we should embrace that and be grateful. God, God helps us pick up the pieces. Yes, he's sovereign over all things. We shouldn't be surprised. Peter is calling our attention to this idea. In verse 1, he has this phrase, Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, this can also be a confusing idea. The Apostle Peter certainly isn't saying that once we're redeemed, we don't sin anymore. We know that can't be true, right? Uh, Because the Bible reveals that even those who are redeemed, in fact, yet sin. They have unredeemed flesh. God is working his work in us. We're, as Bunyan said, entering into the sweating work of believing this idea that we're, we're fighting hard uh, against sin, the devil, and our own flesh, right? But nonetheless, the, the idea here, I'm persuaded, uh, that Peter is getting to is that the suffering inclines us to no longer be earthbound and natural. The idea is conveyed that this suffering is not the result of sin, Again, Peter has identified already for us two, two reasons, two primary reasons that one would suffer. In verse 15, one of the reasons is that people would suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a meddler. We, we should recognize that those sins bring suffering, Right? but that's not the kind of suffering that's going to draw us into the sort of sweet communion with the Lord Jesus Christ that Peter is discussing here. The kind of suffering primarily that takes up Peter's time is the kind of suffering that comes about because of our redemption. Because of our now we're not saying that the suffering of one who's done wrong that's lingering in prison we're not saying that that difficulty can't draw them to Christ. In fact, we know that it can and we're thankful for it. But Peter is distinguishing between the two here. In verse two, he has this contrast. And a number of contrasts in this entire chapter here, and one of these contrasts, we see right here in verse verse two, excuse me, we have living in the flesh, and we have living for the will of God. And living for the will of God is the, P- the biblical alternative to human passions. The Apostle Paul exhorted Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men, who will be able to teach others also, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who." enlisted him, living for the will of God. Living for the will of God. Verse 3, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. The idea isn't here that we're, we've done enough sins and we can stop now, Right? The idea here is that the urgency of the hour and the shortness of the time should urge us on to faithfulness. Verse 4 The wicked are surprised when you don't join them. They're shocked at holiness, they're angered, likely convicted, and are inclined to malign those desiring to live faithfully. Have you ever encountered that? You ever encountered the, the fellowship of sinners it 's a, it's a revelation of the reality of the conviction of the Holy Spirit right? But when you do good, the Bible says you condemn the world by your actions. you condemn the world when you do good. how do you, Have you ever felt condemned <clears throat> Did you take that sitting down? Are you calling me a such and such? Are you saying this about me? The one who, the one who believes they're condemned tends to be defensive, right? Tends to respond with defensiveness. And, and that's the same way that we have encountered people who would stand against those who desire to live holy lives, right? And the Apostle Peter is bringing up this very idea. But he also reveals what will happen to them. They will give account, says verse 5, to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. We should pity those who rail at us in our faith. At the end of their lives, they'll see God as their judge, not as their redeemer. We have another comparison, another contrast here in verse 6. What we have contrasted in verse 6 is this idea of according to men versus according to God. Verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Well, what does persecution look like according to men? Well, those who are unredeemed or those who would persecute believers desiring holiness, those who would persecute, how do they view the persecution? Oh, these guys are finally getting what they deserve. Look at what we're doing. We're bringing justice to this situation. We're, we're, doing, we're doing what needs to be done to these rascals, right? But according to God, what is it? Oh, well, according to God... It's altogether different. According according to God, you see, this persecution, this difficulty is like as the as the Apostle Peter uses the word trial, it's a trial, but that is a that's a phrase that is associated with the smelters, fire, and gold. The smelter's fire and gold, what does it do? Well, it does two things. One of them is it reveals that it is gold, right? It reveals it is gold, and secondly, it purifies. Right? So the trial from the perspective of God, according to God, and not according to man, the trial according to God is such that it reveals that our faith is true. And secondly, it purifies our faith. How many of you have picked up a tool that you were questioning its integrity and capability to do what you needed for it to do? And how many have you broken that tool? And when you broke that tool, what did you find out? It was as I thought, unable to do what I need. Right? When we enter into a trial of faith, those who are redeemed will find that their faith doesn't break, that it is in fact revealed to be true. But secondly, because our faith is imperfect, we also see that God is refining, purifying our faith, right? In trials, in tribulations. My friend that we've prayed for in Hawaii, this colonel in the Marine Corps, uh, he, I talked with him on Friday afternoon, and he said, Of all the things in the midst of this, the thing that I treasure most is that God is helping me to trust him. Trust him. Five times he's been about to be thrown out of the Marine Corps because of these mandates. And he's on time number six. He's been given 30 days. Uh, and, so, and so, but yet, his, the greatest jewel in this is something that is described the same way that the Apostle Peter does, right? Is that his faith has been revealed to be true, and therefore it's being refined, right? It's being refined, You've heard the phrase that trials make me stronger. You'll come out better in the end. That's not a universal truth. But it's true of God's people. Right? It's true of God's people. You want to come out better in the end? Embrace Christ. Trust the Lord. Follow the Lord Jesus. Repent and believe. That's the idea that Peter is getting across here. Again, a phrase of urgency here. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Peter is drawing our attention to, if I were to have chapter heads or title heads for this, I would say this, while judgment awaits those who reject Christ, exoneration awaits the redeemed. Judgment awaits those who reject Christ. Exoneration awaits the redeemed. Now, in this case, judgment uh, is, is the, the anger, if you will, of God directed at individuals. And exoneration is a revelation that they did the right thing, that they, are, that, that they are redeemed. And that's the idea. That's what Peter's getting across here, right? There have been a number of contrasts, right? The wicked and the redeemed persecution from the perspective of the wicked, persecution from the perspective of God, right? But up here, what the Apostle Peter is talking about, the end of all days is near. Well, what is he, what is he talking about? What do you mean, Peter, the end of all days? You mean the end of the week, the end of the month, the end of the year? No. He's talking about that last day. He's talking about when the Lord Jesus returns, right? And what he's saying is, this day of judgment, it'll be judgment for who? Not for God's people. It'll be a day of exoneration for God's people, right? It'll be a day of judgment for those who have rejected Christ. That's the idea. We're awaiting the end of the world. Christians should avoid panic and frenzied preparation and approach life with sobriety and moderation. They'll be exonerated on the last day, and their tormentors will be judged. Now our confession, we could certainly point to the confession at practically every point here. But our confession in chapter 32, the last judgment, chapters 2 and 3, God's purpose for appointing this day is to manifest the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. Paragraph 3, Christ desires that we be firmly convinced that the day of judgment will come, both to deter everyone from sin and to comfort the godly more fully in their adversity. Let me ask you a question. When you anticipate the judgment of God, how does that make you feel? What is Peter encouraging us with here? It's reflected in our confession. Our confession indicates the same thing that Peter is saying. Judgment will come for those who have rejected Christ. Exoneration. Children, this idea that God will validate that it was good to follow the Lord on that day of judgment. Right? Because we have been declared not guilty. And we are—we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. The Father has redeemed us. That's the idea here. In verses 8 through 11, Peter exhorts us to faithful body life. He says here that love covers a multitude of sins. In verse 8, the idea here is that the forgiven sinner should so, show the same forgiving spirit towards his fellow man. Verse 9, we've brought up this idea of hospitality. Does it surprise you that hospitality is a great priority of the Apostle Peter here, as he talks about body life? And he says, he says to enter into hospitality without grumbling. You might be persuaded that Peter heard you under your breath the last time you had house guests, Right? That thing you murmured to yourself in the bathroom that no one heard? Peter knows where you're at. And he says, enter into hospitality without grumbling. Right? So it's, uh, it's, it's urgently important, right? It's certainly uh, among Peter's top five here for aspects of body life. And he, he, he goes ahead and steps right into an exhortation, do it without grumbling. Right? We know that the Bible reveals that we've, some have entertained angels unaware with their hospitality. Verse 10: As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Everyone has need of help from his brother. The church is a storehouse of gifts and talents, always open for service. Here's a question for you: Who owns your gift? That's right. God owns it. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Let's say, as a church, we decided to buy a tractor. All together. And I happen to be using it this week. Right? But whose tractor is it? It's everybody's tractor. Right? And you need it as much as I do. Right? And you have claim to that as much as I do. You see? God owns our gifts. And Peter's calling upon us to serve one another. Martin Luther, uh, certainly among the Reformers, did more for the doctrine of vocation than anyone. Martin Luther was pretty clear on this idea. He said this, he said, God doesn't need your service. Men do. Women do. Boys and girls need your service. And that's a unique thing about the God of the Scriptures, the one true God. Is He isn't a God that is served in the sense of the false gods, right? It's people that we serve. God's church is a storehouse of gifts that we don't individually own. So the question for us is, how are we serving one another with the gifts that God has given us? Verse 11, we have a doxology here. The Apostle Peter, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. I'd like to draw your attention to one aspect here in verse 19. In verse 18 as well. Well, I'll go ahead and look at 17. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us... What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, I draw your attention to this idea of scarcely saved. It is associated again with this distinction that Peter is making between judgment for the ungodly and Peter Peter has two words for those who are not redeemed, ungodly and sinners. He uses ungodly and sinners to describe the unredeemed. But for the redeemed, uh, we see here uh, that he says they're scarcely saved. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that If we think of our relationship to God as judge that we just barely squeak by in court, no. No, that's not the idea here. As a matter of fact, children, I want you to picture, children, are you with me? I want you to picture a sailing ship, okay, a big sailing ship, like three sails, okay, Three sails. And here's the guy with this big wooden wheel, okay? We're in a storm, all right? You picturing me? You're, you got it, Anna? Okay, we're in a storm, right? And here's this guy steering this huge wooden, wooden uh, steering wheel for the ship, right? Why do you think that thing is so big? Because that old ship has a rudder that's connected to that steering wheel, not with a bunch of hydraulic pumps, but with a rope, And he needs all that kind of power to turn that wheel. And this idea of being scarcely saved is the same word that's used for sailors in a storm trying to keep the ship straight. Trying to keep the ship straight. You don't want to put a little guy on that steering wheel because he's just going to go round and round and round. He's got to hold that thing straight. That's the idea the righteous involve themselves in grave difficulty right but we know we know that the righteous will be saved their faith perseveres right this is a this is an important notion right and that's the idea that peter is getting across to us here he has two exhortations for us in verse 19 commit ourselves to a faithful creator continue to do good and then lastly I want to draw your attention to this idea of suffering and there's a supposed balance here and what I have noticed in these difficult days is there I was just talking to uh, to a young marine on Friday And he was talking about balancing the practical aspects of a certain course of action over the biblical conscience aspects. And some of you are likely to think about when we involve ourselves in suffering likely to think about this passage of Scripture uh, in Luke chapter 14, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he says this, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and it's not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Now here's the point. This idea of counting the cost may infer to us this idea that there will be an occasion when I am called to suffer, but it just isn't worth it. I might lose my job. I might lose the promotion. Right? I might lose a number of things. I might lose the self-respect of my neighbors. But you see, I want to urge you to understand this phrase only shows up the Lord Jesus Christ one time. And this idea the idea is this. It is not contrasting the idea that a wise man will make a choice about whether he's going to enter into suffering or not based on the consequences. Over and over and over again, the Bible indicates that we are faithful. We set our face like flint. We don't turn to the right or to the left. And that we are those who, regardless of the expected consequences, follow the Lord Jesus, right, in this difficulty. There is never presented to us this idea where a wise, sophisticated individual will simply opt out of the difficulty because it just isn't worth it, right? The idea that the Lord Jesus brings up in Luke chapter 14 isn't that at all. It's that the faith once delivered to the saints will become a mockery to the unredeemed if we turn away. That's the idea. You want to make a mockery of your own faith? You want to know why Muslims in the Middle East hate Christians? Well, let me tell you why. It's because they're unfaithful Christians. That's why. They're unfaithful Christians. You want, to be, you, want to be, you want to be looked upon with praise by those that would reject the Lord Jesus Christ? Then you follow Him faithfully. You show them what a believer is. Right? Right? Old Leonard Ravenhill, he said, we don't need a new definition of Christianity. We need a new life. We need to see individuals walking the way of Christ. We need an application of Christianity. We need to see, as last week's passage indicated, mark the man, the righteous one. We'll not make a mockery of him. He's faithful. He validates redemption. That there is truth. That the Lord Jesus Christ gives life abundantly. And that at the end of all days, they'll not be judged. They'll be exonerated. Their faith, as as David said in in Psalm chapter 25, he said, Let me not be ashamed. Why? Because I'm following you. Oh God, may it be for me in Psalm 23, as David also wrote, A table in the presence of my enemies. What does that mean? Exoneration. Exoneration. It's the same thing Peter's talking about here in chapter 4 of his first letter. Let's pray.